Um, the uh, it's been uh, quite a uh, busy news week. Um, uh, I think uh, if, if you listen to the to the news, you may have heard that presidential candidate John McCain uh, had a speech in which he gave uh, kind of a forecast, you know, somewhat of a prophecy of what things would look like uh, with his administration. I think it was in the year 2013. I uh, just, as a preface to the message today, I thought I would make up a press release, uh, maybe based on some different circumstances. So this is uh, a press release for May the 18th of 2013 from San Francisco. Gay marriage advocates celebrated today across the nation in the wake of the historic vote of, in the Golden Gate City by the first ever constitutional convention to approve an amendment to the U.S. Constitution which would, quote, guarantee all persons, regardless of gender, the rights and privileges of the status of marriage. The convention called by two-thirds of the states now requires ratification by three-quarters of the states. Convention leaders are very optimistic about the prospects of ratification as polls show support of, for gay marriages ranging from a low of 47% in some southern and mid midwest states to a high of 73% in the, some northeastern states and the west coast. In fact, it was the 2008 California Supreme Court decision banning uh, or overturning a ban on gay marriage that started a virtual sea change across the country as one state after another, another came out in support of gay marriage. One poll indicates that if taken today, a national vote would favor the amendment by almost 11 percentage points. President Obama hailed the vote as an example of democracy at its best. Speaking at a hastily called press conference yesterday, the president exclaimed, the people have spoken and we are now entering an historic new age where all are truly equal, just as the Declaration of Independence states. This nation will soon be free from the tyranny of outdated concepts of marital bondage. In an unprecedented case of strange bedfellows, fundamentalist Mormon leaders added their support for the amendment, as the language of the amendment passed on to the states for ratification would allow groups of any number to wed and enjoy the same marital benefits one man and one woman have today in the few remaining holdout states. Now, I submit to you that, just like a lot of things, there's some, there's some factual basis for that, and it's not necessarily out of the question. A couple of months ago, we started to talk about this issue of how do we as believers influence our culture, and first, the first time we talked about... Um, recognizing that we've got to stop dealing with just the effects of our degeneration and deal with the cause, the primal cause. We've got to get back to God. And then we, uh, last month we talked about uh, why we have failed as, the, as Christians to address those issues effectively. We're addressing them, just not terribly effectively. We talked about lack of compassion, lack of boldness, and, of course, lack of training. So, 
again today, uh, uh, as I mentioned maybe a, a time or two before, a little bit hesitant about this because this is not really what we are used to uh, in terms of messages, a little bit less about the word itself and more about how to effectively communicate the word of God. And, and so uh, what we want to do today is start to look as how we as believers can more effectively take from Scripture some lessons in responding to our culture. So, have you taught, let me ask you parents, have you taught your children to answer questions truthfully? If you're like me, you like folks who speak the truth when asked. In fact, you like people to answer questions in a straightforward manner. You like them to answer the question that was asked. How many of you parents have heard this discussion? What did you do wrong? He slugged me first. Anybody? Am I the only one? Okay, I didn't think so. Well, the difference between that response and those of some political candidates is that the child's response is at least relevant. Um, For me, personally, it's especially difficult when I hear the evasion that goes on uh, in the debates and press interviews and that sort of thing because in the courtroom uh, where we try to avoid irrelevant information and evasive answers in order to get to the truth, uh, we've got an advantage of having a judge there who can rule on, on questions and answers. Uh, and in fact, you, the judge may require a witness to answer the question directly. In what they call cross-examination, when a, a lawyer is examining or uh, questioning a witness for the other side, you can in fact in some cases, require the witness to answer yes or no. Uh, So when I hear politicians or kids answer in an evasive manner, I usually shout out, at least in spirit, objection not responsive to the question. And I suspect that many parents have had that same objection from time to time. Uh, So does intentional avoidance of a question and a completely unrelated response, some call it spin, does that bug you sometimes when you hear it? Well, certainly, the spin doctors are trying to mislead. For example, instead of answering a direct question about a specific deed, one former president looked the public eye of the camera, waved his fingers to emphasize a truthful statement truthful statement, truthful only by the narrowest interpretations. His spin doctors then engaged in a media campaign about discussing what the meaning of is is and whether private conduct of a public official is something we should even talk about. It wasn't easy, nor without damage to his reputation, but he did survive a vote of impeachment and now has a library named after him. Uh, He successfully avoided and reframed the issue to distract attention from the ugly truth, and that, we can all agree, is clearly wrong. 
Why was it wrong? Again, we've got to have a reason. Well, Scripture tells us, bear not false witness, let your yea be yea, your nay be nay. Uh, and in Titus 2 it says, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Well, with that, can a question lead one down a particular path? Absolutely. When examining an adverse witness, it's the lawyer's job to guide the witness one logical step after another to the admission of a material fact the lawyer needs to prove. And as long as the fact is relevant to the issue the court has to decide and the lawyer doesn't take advantage of or mislead or badger the witness, the questioning is proper and necessary to arrive at the truth. The other lawyer has the right to object to the question in order to avoid any, any abuse. In the public arena, however, we don't have those safeguards. So I ask the question, is avoiding the question and changing the subject in a response ever justified? Be careful how you answer that question to yourself. Is it ever wise? Well, we've got to remember that there are always two sides to any discussion. Both the responder and the questioner usually have agendas. Can a questioner himself engage in spin? Well, let's first take a look at what is rhetoric. Rhetoric, like the word propaganda, gets a bad rap. Uh, rhetoric is simply defined as the art of using words effectively in speaking or in writing. And it can be for good or it can be for evil. It's a neutral word. A questioner can set up the rhetorical playing field. Should we always play on the field presented us, or do we have a more important field on which to play? Let's take a look at the example or the rhetoric of Jesus. How did the Lord himself handle direct questions? What can we learn from practical application for our day? We're going to turn to Matthew 21. And starting there at verse 23, I have a familiar story. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will, ask, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began to reason among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But, on the other hand, if we say from men, we're afraid of the people's response because they all regard John as a prophet. And so, answering Jesus, they said, Ah, we don't know. He also said to them, Well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Jesus received a direct question. By what authority do you act? His response, pretty pretty evasive, wasn't it? What was accomplished by that response? Jesus put the chief priests and the elders in a lose-lose situation and exposed their real motive. They didn't really want an answer. They just wanted to entrap him. Most everybody accepted John the Baptist as a prophet. What Jesus did was a common rhetorical device, uh, device called the horns of a dilemma. Dilemma comes from the Greek word lemma, meaning assumption. Dilemma means two assumptions. Uh, and the purpose of a dilemma is to demonstrate the undesirability or inescapability of two alternatives. The respondent must either confront the dilemma, counter it directly, or be impaled by one or the other of its alternatives known as the horns. Uh, Lawyers have a joke of a a dilemma that is presented on cross-examination where the witness must answer yes or no. And, And the question is, have you stopped beating your wife? Okay, think about it. And, of course, a lawyer is not going to get away with that in court, but it does happen. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, there was a city council meeting in Topeka, and several people, a whole room full of people, testified on the issue of whether Topeka should have a, civil, a special rights ordinance dealing with sexual orientation. And the mayor, not our present mayor, but the mayor at that time, specifically said to everybody who was going to get up and give their input, I want you to answer the question, do you believe we should have discrimination in Topeka? Yes or no? And you can see the problem that presents. Well, Jesus stymied these priests and elders with this dilemma so that they didn't know what to do. So instead... They punted. We don't know. We don't know. Jesus said, well, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. However, he didn't stop there. He didn't want this to end in a stalemate. He then draws them into a conversation with a much easier question presented as a parable, a softball, if you will. Reading on in in Matthew 21, verse 28, Well, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go and work in the the vineyard today. And the son answered, What? No way. But later he repented of his answer, and he went and he did the work. And the father went to a second son and said the same thing. And the son answered, Yes, sir. But he didn't go. Now, Jesus asked the question, which of the two did the will of his father? And, of course, they answered, well, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. 
And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. So Jesus, in using his own rhetoric, kept the ball in play by presenting a question for which they couldn't claim ignorance. He wasn't satisfied with unveiling their wrong motives, but instead he reframed the issue because he wanted to bring them and all the listeners back to the central point, God and a right relationship with God. Well, let's take another example. Next chapter, chapter 22 of Matthew, starting at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. You see, the Pharisees asked another direct question. Is it lawful, should we, the Jews, who recognize only God as king, pay tribute to Caesar? You have to understand, the Herodians were a political group loyal to Herod and the Roman policies that kept power over the Jews. And normally, the Pharisees and the Herodians were bitter enemies, but these strange bedfellows were invited to set a stage for an attack on a common enemy. The Pharisees returned the favor of Jesus' previous encounter. They tried to put Jesus on those same horns of a dilemma. If Jesus answers no, the Herodians report back to the Romans about his rebellious statements. If he says, yes, you should pay tribute, the Pharisees had the smoking gun they needed to turn the masses against him because all, they all hated the Romans and the use of their tax money to support their pagan temples and decadent lifestyle. So, with both horns of the dilemma standing before him, Jesus answered how did Jesus answer that direct question? Well, this same Jesus who taught us to turn the other cheek actually goes on the offensive by attacking the motives of the questioners. He accuses the Pharisees of being hypocrites and puts them on the defensive. He then counters the dilemma by rebuttal. He artfully reframes the question with a different point of view. Because the money they used bore the image of Caesar, was it not minted in his authority? And was it not, in a practical sense, Caesar's? Not that, uh, excuse me, if so, was it right to withhold from Caesar what was rightfully his? 
Not that that particular coin belonged to Caesar, but that there was a governing authority to which tribute or taxes were to be paid. But again, Jesus didn't lead the discussion there. He did not simply want to settle the social issue of man's obligation to the state. More importantly, he wanted to point people to God. He ended with, and give to God what is God's. The Pharisees asked their question intending to discredit the threat that he offered. But by taking the initiative and changing the terms of the debate, the passage says, they left and went away. You see, when God becomes the central issue, debates about secondary matters often take care of themselves and even go away. In these and several other exchanges, Jesus was pretty confrontational with his adversaries. Could you or I get away with being as upfront as Jesus was? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, he had a fairly significant advantage in these debates. Um, I don't know any mere men who stand in his position today, but because we don't have the wisdom of God, should we then just blindly answer questions asked as if we're under cross-examination in a courtroom? I suggest that instead, we've got to learn from the rhetoric of Jesus how to make God the issue as best we can. Several other examples we'll mention briefly. In the same chapter, Matthew 22, we've got the Sadducees asking about the seven husbands for this one woman. And in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And the answer is, there's no marriage in heaven. But the real issue is resurrection. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Again, later on in that same passage, in that same chapter, the lawyer asked the question, what's the great commandment? I mean, he wanted to know what he should focus, which of the ten he should focus on. And Jesus instead answers, no, 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 you're missing something. It's love God and love your neighbor. And finally, in John 8, Moses, they say that Moses said this adulteress should be stoned. And they asked Jesus, what say you? He simply said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Young lady, go and sin no more. You see, in each case, Jesus took control of the debate by, frankly, ignoring the initial question and reframing it for his own purposes. He moved from defense to offense by redefining the rhetorical playing field, thereby outflanking his opponents to stay on his message. Uh, These examples show how we can transcend just about any issue to make God the focus of the public debate. It won't be easy, but in order to accomplish this, we've got to study his tactics. It sounds foreign to to talk about this in in church. But... Whose example are we to follow? And I think that includes even the way that we engage the culture. And we need to understand or recognize that the amoral forces of tolerance reign 
in our present culture. Vietnam teaches us that a good defense can rarely do more than delay defeat. Therefore, if all we do is condemn the symptomatic issues like abortion and homosexuality and pornography as morally wrong, we're going to lose the culture and it will continue to slide from tolerance to acceptance to reverence of that behavior. In our culture, to condemn anything except Christianity is intolerance. And if we come across ourselves as intolerant, we lose our ability to communicate to a large part of that culture. Those in the middle who aren't sure of truth, but might embrace it if they heard it in an understandable, common-sense manner. The bottom line is each time we react offensively to their issue, like abortion, it becomes choice. With homosexuality, it becomes discrimination. We come off as Bible kooks. We are marginalized. Worse yet, it gets us off of God's message. Now, Jesus said, do not judge or you will be judged. Now, how many times have we heard that verse during a debate about homosexuality or any other moral issue? It seems that every time a Bible-believing Christian quotes a verse about sin, a liberal Christian will stand up and shout this verse. Why? Too often because the Bible-believing Christian has not properly laid his groundwork. He's got to reframe the issue instead so that God's perspective can be seen not just as an intolerant alternative, but rather as the only viable and loving option. It's ironic that this plowshare of a verse that's been hammered into a sword by religious liberals is really the genesis of a powerful strategy for us. Martin Luther King put it this way, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but rather to save the world, even though the basis for condemnation is palpable, very real. God, the author of love, is the logical starting point to change our culture. We must likewise take the high ground of love casting out fear, hate casting out, excuse me, love casting out fear and hate, rather than grappling with hate using arguments which belie perceived or even subtle hatred on our part. In order to start with God, we've got to first connect up in the minds of our fellow citizens their view of God on the one hand and their position on any given moral issue on the other. Um, The goal here is not to discuss moral content, but to clearly establish the link between God and morality, without which comes only chaos and tyranny. 
Uh, now, many who call themselves Christians really don't see the connection between God and their view on a moral issue because of the moral relativism we have in our culture. There's simply a disconnect. Uh, how often have you heard the question in regard to a moral issue, well, uh, how, do, how do you feel about that? How do you feel? And a proper response might be, how do you think God feels about that? Often, when asked a difficult question, politicians have been programmed to respond, well, that's a good question, but I think the real issue is, and maybe we need to pay attention to the tactics of the politicians. In other words, when faced with a question involving a moral issue, we shouldn't just answer the question asked or even talk about the moral rightness of our position, but use the opportunity to talk about the critical question of the existence and identity of God. Without God, morality is little more than a fairy tale. An opinion without basis or fact, in, in fact, a reality. A concept on the level of Santa and the Easter Bunny. Somehow, some way, we've got to get back to the starting point. So, one practical application for today, and um, Lord willing, we'll talk about several others on, on many of the key issues next time. Okay, maybe you get in a, in a conversation or you come, up, come upon one between someone else and someone makes the statement or asks the question, aren't you just trying to force your Christianity or your morals down my throat? Now, how would one respond to that? Well, James Dobson did a good job one time, and here's basically what he said. Honestly, I don't believe I can force anyone, not even my dog, to accept my beliefs. Now, am I wrong about that? My God wants your heart, not your coerced obedience. But let me ask you a question. Was the slavery of blacks and the Holocaust wrong? And assuming an affirmative response, you might go on and say, well, who says? What's your authority? Or where does your right and wrong come from? You see how that might lead into a discussion about first things, about primary causes. We want to take it back to God is the issue. Now, this tactic, if you will, is critical for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that we need to fight on terra firma, you know, firm ground, uh, solid ground that we can defend. We've got little control over their issues, but we can frame and direct a discussion on the existence of God. Ben Stein correctly went to the heart of the issue with Richard Dawkins in uh, the Expelled movie by simply asking, where did it all start? Where did we come from? Now, should we take this tactic, they will attack even more vehemently than to arguments about morality. But we will be able to begin taking back territory rather than retreating as we have been for decades. We won't necessarily convince our opponents, but with a focus on 
the, the God of love, we can begin to win over those in the middle. Some battles are easier than others. Uh, a few years ago, I'm sure many of you remember uh, the Constitutional Amendment to the Kansas Constitution dealing with marriage. And frankly, um, and I think this was wise, there were some who, some who wanted that to be on the November ballot when they could get all the, the right-wing crazies out to vote for their candidates. But others said, no, we need this right now. Uh, and so it was on, I think, an April ballot. And uh, had no time from the legislative session until April to really convince anybody. All we could do was make sure that people knew it was going to be on the ballot. That was the sole thing we could do, and, and uh, uh, that was a rather easy thing to accomplish at that time, uh, two or three years ago. On the other hand, as far back as 1986, the Kansas Constitution prohibiting gambling or gaming of any sort fell to an argument for the economy, business, uh, and it's been going downhill ever since. Uh, just recently, the last year, the state of Missouri lost a very narrow battle to change in changing their constitution to allow for stem cell research, when that was still a very, very important issue, uh, because huge uh, financial interests were on the other side, and the, the public bought it. Uh, next, we still have an audience at this point predisposed to our argument, not necessarily in total agreement with us. George Barna says, George Barna says that 85% of Americans call themselves Christians. Okay? Eight of those 85% are evangelicals. Uh, 33 of the 85 are born-again non-evangelicals, and 44 of those, 40, of those 85% are people who just use the label, don't identify with core Bible doctrines, but still they might have a notion of right and wrong. So to get this goal accomplished, we must help those people see that both God and the Bible uh, are vital to our continued stability. Again, when you look back at the marriage amendment a few years ago in Kansas, 70% is what it garnered in favor. And we don't have 70% of the people in Kansas who are evangelical, certainly. And I, I doubt are even believers. There's still a core value at this point. It is eroding. So time is not in our favor. And if we can establish a connection between God and a particular moral issue, it simply makes it easier to make the connection between God and other issues. It's a little bit like using the camel's nose on our own behalf. We first got to establish some sort of foothold. Once we understand the rhetoric of Jesus, it's not hard to understand why our opponents fight so hard to censor any form of religious speech from public discourse. Not only is God the watershed issue, it is the only issue properly framed that can consistently enable us to maintain control of the rhetorical playing field. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, uh, we don't know all the things you've got in store for 
our nation, uh, for our state, for our city, for our body here. But Lord, we know that you want us to be salt and light. You want us to affect the, the culture around us. And I pray, Lord, that uh, no one would hear this message as a call to strident political action, but rather as to a smarter, more effective way of engaging the culture to bring the issue back to you. Because that is the one true, solid, firm foundation upon which we can stand. Lord, we we know that there are those out there who simply will not listen. But there are many in the middle, Lord, who are looking, who wish they knew of some ground on which they could stand. And Lord, we have that opportunity. We pray, Lord, that whatever happens, that all would be for your glory. We pray that you would work in each and every one of our hearts to bring about your best in our lives. Help us, Lord, to get our own house in order, but help us, Lord, also to understand that others are watching and they're listening when we respond. Help us, Lord, not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, not to bring others to see you face to face. We ask these these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.